Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. This section through uh, the last uh, half of 3 and the entirety of chapter 4 really, uh, or 3 and 4 really, are not clearly um, delineated in terms of like a, a structure that clearly goes from one point to another. He, he really uh, has been blending things as he goes. So we covered the first few verses of chapter 4 last week. We're going to cover those again this week because they are a transition into the rest uh, of this chapter. Uh, so we will be looking at Ecclesiastes 4 uh, in its totality today. The title of the sermon is very uncreative. Two are better than one. There were several titles that I was bantying about. Uh, one is uh, the question, for whom am I living? For whom am I living? Or two are better than one. Ecclesiastes 4. Hear, O sons, a father... Oh, that's Proverbs, sorry. At least we didn't get halfway through the chapter. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no, not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who, had no, longer, who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been uh, born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. 
There was no end of all the people, all whom he led. Yet those who, came, uh, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you continue to work on our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our will, to teach us to live wisely, a wisdom that is not natural to us in our fallen state, but has been revealed to us not only in your word, but in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you this morning for the union that we have with Christ, that that Christ, who perfectly embodied your wisdom, has taken up residence within us, has given us his mind, and empowers us by his spirit to walk in that union and communion and to grow and to mature in reflecting his life in and through not only our, our own lives as individuals, but especially as your church. So bless this word to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christy and I recently started re-watching a show that we watched last year, one of our pandemic shows, a show called Poldark. One of the things that I enjoy about the show, I hope that, yeah, I see some smiles. One of the things that's funny about the show to me uh, is that there are two characters, and, and, and lots of people do this, but there are two characters in particular uh, that are the main character's servants. They are horrible servants. Um, but because they are, uh, the, the show is set uh, in latter 18th century Cornwall, uh, and so the servants are um, very uneducated, uh, and so uh, being uneducated, they speak in funny ways. And one of the things that is always funny to me is their use of pronouns, and they get their pronouns wrong. Uh, and one of the ones that they do the most is they will say we when they mean us. And so as I was thinking about this text, it, it struck me that that's actually really helpful. Because this text as, as Solomon continues to unfold for us the wise life or living the good life, you could summarize the, the latter part of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, you could summarize as the good life is found in living for we instead of me. The good life, the wise life, the good life, is found in living for we, not me. Solomon has been unfolding for us the wisdom that comes from the certainty that death is coming. Death is coming. You cannot escape it. Unless Jesus returns, you are going to die. 
and the certainty of that death. Though it is sad and it is solemn, it is also enlightening. And the certainty of this death frees us from playing games in this life, from playing make-believe. And in the first couple chapters, he really unfolded for us some of the negative consequences that come from death in, you know, the certainty of death as part of life. And he sets forth those negative things as, as warnings for us so that we would pay attention, so that we will not give ourselves to the rat race, that we will not try to keep up with the Joneses, that we will make the most of our time here as we give ourselves to God, as we give ourselves to the vocations he has blessed us with, as we give ourselves to food and community. He has been unfolding this for us. And what we looked at last week is as he's looking at the world, as he continues to tell us, here's what I see. He introduced the idea to us that God has put eternity into our hearts. But in our fallen states, our, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. It's a Sunday school plug for Tracy's class on St. Augustine. God has put this, this desire into our hearts, and yet we're not able in and of ourselves to fulfill or find fulfillment in this life for those desires. C.S. Lewis has, has told us if we look around this world and we find that there is nothing in it that can fulfill our heart's desires, then it directs us to understand that we have been created for a different world. We have been created for something beyond what is here and what is now. God has put this into our hearts. Sin has twisted it, has complicated it. And the life that now exists under the sun, history, history is marked by the twisting of God's original intentions. God created us to know him, to be known by him. As our Sunday school class with the 10 to 14-year-olds have been talking about, God exist, has existed as a trinity for all eternity. God has always known union and communion. And his desire is to draw others into that union and communion, to share himself, to be known and to know. And that he is accomplishing these purposes through Christ and through the Spirit. We talked today about the covenant of redemption and the way the members of the Trinity are working together to accomplish this purpose of giving us the privilege to know God and to make God known. But since, and, and, and so when God created, his purposes was to live in fellowship with his creation. And we rejected him. And ever since then, humanity in this fallen condition, rather than having community as, as being at the heart of our self-understanding of our existence, we 
have had competition. This is what Solomon is unfolding for us here in chapter 4. That people, rather than living in community with one another, working together as two are better than one and three even better than that, instead, he looks around and he sees people using people. He sees oppression. Last week, when we talked about this, I, I made the point that when we see this oppression that he is unfolding for us here, the oppression is not simply oppressors versus oppressees. He is not describing here what many of us are hearing in current discussion, that everyone that exists is, can be class of put into these individual classes that you are locked into. That oppressors are this class of people and that oppressees are this class of people and that what we need to do to remedy the oppression is we need to flip the script. We need to change the story. And what's being taught right now is that those who get categorized as oppressees can never become oppressors. And that those who are classified as oppressors can never become oppressees. Solomon, in the Hebrew, says hogwash. He didn't really say that in the Hebrew. An oppressor can become the oppressee. The oppressor can oppress himself or herself. There aren't these clear lines Solomon is telling us, which is different than what the world tells us. There are people promoting critical theory that have a small bit of, of understanding and horrible application. Solomon says there is oppression. He looks at life. He looks at history, and what does he see? There is oppression. And how bad is the oppression? It's better to die so that you don't have to see the oppression and that you don't have to experience the oppression. How bad is oppression? Well, you know what? It's even better. What's better than dying is, is never having been born. That is how wicked oppression is. That is how contrary oppression is to God's purposes in this world. Oppression is this, this, this ugliness that distorts the purposes that God had for us from the beginning. He, built, he made us for community. We rejected him and we chose competition. And so people use one another. And this happens at a large scale. This can happen from governments towards its people. It can happen from governments towards other peoples. It can happen from corporations to their own employees. It can happen from corporations to consumers. It can happen within families. It can happen within your job. It can happen anywhere and everywhere because there is at the center of our being, eternity has been placed, but sin has twisted it. And it is ugly. 
And so I said last week, we don't get the option of deciding that because people who are promoting critical theory are wrong, that we get to ignore the reality and the ugliness of oppression. We, if we are going to live the good life, Solomon tells us we are going to learn to live for we instead of me. One of my favorite movies, not, all right, you know, there are different classes of favorite movies. It's not one of those I want to watch all the time. It's not one of those that I want to just sit back and kind of go into neutral and just enjoy. It's one of those movies that makes you think and it's fun because you have to follow. You have to look at every detail and you have to watch it multiple times to keep catching the, the greater details. So one of those movies for me is Interstellar. And Interstellar is this movie about there is a problem in the world that they know the world is coming to an end and they're looking for some kind of solution. And one of the solutions that they are looking for is finding another inhabitable planet so that they can take humanity, get it off of Earth, and take it to a new Earth. In their first go-around... The astronauts that they send off into this, into this mission, they purposely chose astronauts who had no earthly connections. They purposely chose people who didn't have family, who didn't have anything meaningful connected to them to earth because they thought, well, if we pick people who are disconnected, then they won't act with selfish intent and they'll serve the greater good. But then we get to meet one of those original astronauts. The role played by Matt Damon. Where we get to see Matt Damon as a bad guy, not the hero. And he lies. And he manipulates. And he tries to get the team to, to do what he wants for his own personal survival because the planet that he has gone to to investigate is not inhabitable. But he lies and tells the team that it is inhabitable to get them to come to his planet so that he can be rescued. You see, the agreement was when you go out, if the planet you're sent to is not hospitable, then you die there. He didn't want to die. And so he lied. And he manipulated. And he got saved. And he was delivered. The irony is that they thought if we send people who have no connections that they'll, they'll live for the greater good. And what they found was the opposite. The one who had no connections lived only for himself. And that's what you see here, the one who is disconnected from community, the one who is disconnected from living for we, does end up living for me. And that leads to oppressions, it leads to envy, it leads to discontentment, it leads you to want what others have and not to be satisfied with what God has blessed you with. And that leads us to become workaholics. It can also lead us to become lazy. Two extremes. 
where the lazy one oppresses himself by getting to the point that he's not consuming other people, he's not consuming others' resources, he consumes himself. The oppressor and the oppressee in one person. It is so easy right now for us to see the obvious problems with critical theory and the answers that it is promoting to us about the current situation. But because the problems are so obvious, the temptation is to reject everything. Solomon tells us in history, life under the sun is going to be characterized by oppression. But Christianity teaches us that we don't deal with the problem by only being concerned with the oppressor, uh, by the oppressees. We have to be concerned for the oppressees and the oppressors. We have to care for both. And so the answer cannot be found by flipping the narrative and giving the oppressees the new power to start oppressing the former oppressors. That's not the answer, because that is still a living for me and not for we. There's another extreme option that, is, that I see sometimes, and that's not only that we don't have to care about oppression, I, I see people that say the answer to the problems of critical theory is that we have to promote a, a, a radical individualism that keeps people you know, from trying to, to, to oppress, by trying to take things that aren't theirs, by trying you know, to keep them from taking my time, my treasures, and my talents. And there is a degree of truth there as well, but it's not a complete truth. Because Solomon tells us, two are better than one. And three is better than two. Happiness, the good life, is not going to be found in a radical individualism it is going to be found in living for we, not me. Now, I'm scared saying this. Not scared. I know there's going to be blowback. We don't get to live in the extremes. We have to hold on to not only that there is oppression, we have to hold on that community and living for community is to be primary in the way that we approach things. Who are you living for? You see, the one who has nobody has no answer for that other than himself or for herself. I'm living for me. And in the example that he gives here in Ecclesiastes 4, it develops a workaholism. It develops into a life where there is not the enjoyment of God's gifts. There is not the enjoyment of vocation. There is not the enjoyment of food and drink with others. 
He's just working himself to death. And when he finishes, what does he have? Nothing. So the answer, according to Solomon, is not found in the extremes. We don't promote an individualism over community, and we don't promote community over the individual. It's both. And I would agree with those who say that when there is the most individual liberty, that it promotes the best opportunities for living in community, I would agree. But what I also think we have to come to grips with is that is changing. And I lament that change. But I have to be ready to live in community even if I don't have that level of individual liberty that I crave and that I think is best for everyone. It doesn't mean we give up on it. We just have to remember that Jesus never promised us that we would always get to follow him within a society that promoted those things. He told us that they hated me, they're going to hate you. He told us that to follow him, we are to take up a cross. And so we want to avoid the extremes. Do I think critical theory is wrong? Yes. It is built on a worldview that has no answers for the oppression. And it will just perpetuate oppression. But is there some truth there that community has to play a bigger role in the way that we see how we live, the answer is yes. We have to take oppression seriously. But the answer to that is not going to be found in a radical individual answer. It is going to be found in pursuing community according to the truth of what God has revealed. And what did he just reveal? Working from the perspective of envy is wrong. What does that mean? You don't have a right to what God has given me. Oh, there's some individual liberty. And yet God has told me that what I have as a gift from him is to be utilized for the community. You see, it's both. And so we want to rightly discern the errors of, of a system that is being promoted and that for some reason is being taken up within the church, even within the PCA. We want to rightly be able to identify the errors that are part of that, but we also don't want to respond with a worldly response that decides, well, they're wrong about oppression, so we don't have to be worried about oppression. They're wrong about community, therefore we don't have to be worried about community. We do, but we have to hold these things biblically, not politically. You have no right 
to what God has blessed me with, and yet God has told me what I have is to be shared with those around me. Two are better than one. And so, beloved, as we continue to follow Christ in a difficult world that is difficult because of sin, for sure, but it is becoming more difficult because the Judeo-Christian worldview is disappearing. We can and should rightly lament the truth that is being lost. But we still have the responsibility to embody that truth, even though now it is really difficult, way more complicated, and it is so much more costly. Because what I want to do in my lament is just complain and then fight. What God says is take our complaint to him, lay it into his lap, and then entrust ourselves to him to follow him even in this world that now exists that's different than what we grew up in. And to be faithful to embody the proper perspective of community where community is about my freely giving, not community as resources for me to take. As we rightly understand individual liberty, that it is we are free in Christ to give ourselves to him and to our neighbor. Not free to take. Because Jesus Christ and his mission, because of the oppression he saw, because the unending envy that he saw, because of the competition over community that he saw, came to earth, giving up glory that he was due in order to humble himself as a servant, serving even to the point of death. Beloved, the good life is going to be discovered and it's going to be experienced in this world as we learn to biblically live for we and not for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are difficult words because they require much of us. And so fill us with your spirit and with the enabling grace that he provides for us to respond to sin well, for us to respond to false theories well but also for us to entrust ourselves to do what is right and what is good, even when it is hard, difficult, costly. Especially, Lord, when it puts us into a position that there is no easy, simple camp that we fit into. And yet remind us, Lord, that we, as your church, are a camp that you have created where we are those who live and dwell with you experiencing and embodying that union and communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
with a mission of revealing that to the world. And so, Lord, help us to entrust ourselves not only to your message and to your mission, but even to your methods. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.